you brought your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are in a, a sermon series from 1 Corinthians called Good News for the Not So Good. Good News for the Not So Good. We are in chapter 8 today, and we're going to talk about the theme or the topic of true spirituality. And uh, covering some material here that usually isn't covered in a church setting because it really doesn't all that, apply all that much to us in our day, in our age. We'll get to that in a minute. But 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Now about food, sacrifice to idols, we, all, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, friends, when it, when it comes down to it, we don't know all there is to know. And if you come down to it and you're talking to an atheist, you can probably get an atheist to admit that they're an agnostic and not an atheist because, once again, we don't know all there is to know. And uh, uh, I'll leave that one there too, but different sermon, different time. But the man who loves God is known by God, verse 3. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, little g, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause him to fall. Now, there's a lot of words there and a lot of information there. And as we continue in our series on 1 Corinthians, we're kind of at chapter 8, moves into a new section in which Paul talks about your, my freedom, our freedom in Christ. And, and really, where do we draw the line with that? You'll recall that in chapter 6, if you were here for, this, uh, for any part of the series, in chapter 6, verse 12, 1 Corinthians, he says, all, ling, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are, are helpful or profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, Paul is going to talk about that thought in chapter 8, chapter 9, and really what it means for us and how we are to apply this in our own lives in a way that hopefully brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's going to address a number of topics in these upcoming chapters. One reoccurring topic, the topic on which he seems to base his entire argument, is one that hardly applies to us in this day and this age. 
In other words, he is going to talk a good deal about whether it's okay for a Christian to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, I know this hardly fits our experience today, but it mattered a great deal to the readers back then. Now, in the non-Christian culture of first century Corinth, there were, keep in mind, temples scattered throughout the city, all over town where people would go to offer their sacrifices to their, quote-unquote, various gods, such as Aphrodite, Apollo, Poseidon, and a host of others. And people would then go to these temples and purchase various food items, typically meat, and offer it to the gods in order to win some imaginary favor for their generosity. And, and, and then these items would be then in turn sold in the marketplace for the common person to go and purchase them. The idea being, well, this steak I'm about to eat was offered to this God, so therefore God's, you know, this God's favor must be upon me. That was kind of the idea. And so they thought that you might score some points for eating food that was offered to one of their gods, a little G. Now, as Christianity continued to spread throughout the, 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 the cultures there where this practice was common, the question often came up then, should a Christian, should a Christ follower eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god? And there were many that would say, well, no, you shouldn't. This food would be tainted by its association, and by eating it, you could consume a corrupt spiritual influence. That's one hand. On the opposite side, others would say, nonsense. These gods don't even exist. They're just make-believe, and they have no power over anyone. You can eat whatever you want. How many prefer the second category versus the first, all right? Now, with that, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but, but uh, I've heard of Christians today not wanting to go to Sedona, Arizona because of Sedona's New Age emphasis. Uh, basically, psychics and crystals and the vortex, metaphysical things and whatever. It is said to be the new capital age of the world. I uh, know a number of years ago, Jill and I had a timeshare uh, at Sedona at one of the resorts there. Bought it off of eBay for a couple hundred bucks. It was uh, every other year on the even years for, for one week. And we enjoyed it. We pulled the Harley up there and loved taking the Harley uh, along Oak Creek Canyon. Did that several times, 89A. If you haven't been there, it's a beautiful, beautiful drive. Love that. And my take on going to Sedona was pretty simple. My God is bigger than any false God. And so I don't let that worry me in that sense. Now, while I respect the enemy, I don't fear him. I fear God. In a biblical sense. So back to this, then in Paul's day, some who had come out of that pagan culture could not imagine that it would be okay eating such food that's been offered to these quote-unquote gods. In fact, they were afraid it would draw them back into their pre-Christian lifestyle. I don't know if you've heard the news or not, but when we were on vacation over Labor Day weekend, uh, on September 1, Jimmy Buffett died. He passed away, and I don't know about you, but I am always amazed at people's theology when an entertainer dies. Some of the comments, and I quote, he's drinking margaritas and eating his cheeseburger in paradise because of his songs, Margaritaville and Cheeseburger in Paradise. He's smiling from heaven. Sail on, Jimmy, son of a sailor. Fins up always. 
bubbles up. He found his lost shaker of salt. Now, all you Christians have no idea what I'm talking about, but I know this song by heart, pretty much do. Um, Fair winds and following seas, Jimmy. Jimmy Buffett himself said, and I quote, if there's a heaven for me, I'm sure it has a beach attached to it. Other condolences and words of condolences, rest in peace, rest in paradise. Thank you, Jimmy Buffett, for all those songs and amazing concerts. Your joyful embrace of life was everywhere. Cheers up there. Another one. It's five o'clock in heaven. Another one. He's now playing music with other entertainers who have passed away. What a party it must be. I can go on and on and on because I've read a lot of that. I, am, I have nothing against Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I'm not a parrot head. Uh, I have listened to some of his music, still listen to some of his music. And in all my years as a follower of Jesus Christ for 40 years now, even though I have listened to Margaritaville in 40 years, I have yet to have a margarita. If you have one, that's up to you and God and whatever. I'm just not going to uh, have a margarita, all right? And, and yet I know the song Margaritaville. Now, do I think that by listening to that song, it's going to take me back in my pre-Christian life? Uh, no, I don't, all right? Uh, it's 40 years later, and uh, I don't have a problem with that. However, if I know of somebody that might just been recently saved from drugs or, and or alcohol, I'm not going to play that song in their presence because I know it might trip them up. That's the point that Paul's trying to make here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Went a long ways around it to get to that, but do you understand what I'm saying, all right? I can say that, but some in Paul's day, some had come out of the pagan culture, could not imagine it'd be okay to eat this food, this meat in particular, that was offered to idols. That's how many Christians felt about the temple atmosphere and the practice of temple restaurants and markets selling food that had been sacrificed. By the way, just like one more, one more comment, and I'll probably address it a little bit more next week, but not everyone that dies... Rest in peace. And I'll leave it there for now, address that at a different time. But uh, back to 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul clearly leans toward what we might call a more enlightened view on this topic because these so-called gods were all figments of the cultural imagination and eating food sacrificed to them didn't affect you spiritually. That's what Paul is saying, but Paul still recommends a more tempered approach to this topic. Paul suggests that we make decisions not based solely on this is my right, but rather based on what's best for others. And I know that goes against our way of thinking in our individualist, rugged, you know, American kind of Western version of that. But the Holy Spirit through Paul has directed Christians to always act with a love for other believers that may in fact require, God help us, self-denial. All right. Self-denial simply means limiting one's freedom and setting aside all questionable activities in order not to offend or weaken the sincere convictions of weaker Christians. Paul also alludes to those who, who, based, who base their, their rights, basically, to do certain questionable things on their knowledge or their mature understanding, but in reality they show they do not know as they ought to know, which I read to you from the 8th chapter. You see, our knowledge in life is always incomplete 
and imperfect. Thus, our actions must first be based on love for God and a love for other, uh, for others. Now, on a side note, I, I enjoy listening to most genres of music, except rap that is not music. I'm just kidding. Um, I know some of you like that, and I like making fun of you, but I, I'm not a rap person, and so me and Snoop Dogg, we're just not hanging out together, you know. But uh, I've always enjoyed and listened to good musicians. I like good vocalists. One of the shows record, and I know it's all scripted and it's set by Hollywood, but it's America's Got Talent. And I like watching some of the acts on that, some of the singers, musicians. Last year we heard Drake Milligan and Chapel Hart, and they were back on just in the last few weeks and enjoyed listening to them again. But simply put, I like good music. But when others hear what I like, they might be reminded then of a life they never want to experience again. And so it would be wrong on my part to try to persuade them that my style of music is harmless, even though the words themselves may be, in fact, quite harmless. Now, Paul, who will talk more about this attitude in, in chapter 9, when he discusses his own approach in ministry and his rights as an apostle. But the guiding principle behind all of this, and we'll hear this idea in the next few weeks as we go through 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and a little bit on, is that we make our choices, once again, not based on our own sense of privilege, but rather based on what is best for all involved. In other words, what's going to build up the church? What's going to reach people's hearts? What's going to give the greatest glory to God? God? What's going to help the gospel of Jesus Christ move forward? What's going to see lives changed and impacted by the power and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, herein we see what true spirituality really is. It's not about living an austere lifestyle any more than it's about disregarding all the rules and claiming they don't matter. As Paul writes, now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. But then he says, but love, while love builds up. And then verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, a problem that we face oftentimes in Christianity is that we base our spirituality on how much we know. Right? I mean, guess what? God doesn't use that standard. All right. God measures our spirituality not by what we know, but by how we love. See, we are called to obedience. We are called to study God's word, but you can obey and study God's word and still miss the mark. In Mark chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, the, the, the teacher asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus answered, Mark 12, 29, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he, Jesus, said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why? Because he answered them so well. And he kind of put them on the spot. You see, what it comes down to is this. What Christianity comes down to is this. Christians are to love God and love people. And it's really that basic. It's that simple. We are to love God and love people. Verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. You also recall in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus said this, and, and we, all, we would all say, yes, the word of God is important. The word of God is powerful. Would you agree? I mean, it's not going to return to God void. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's enduring. It's everlasting. And yet Jesus says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The only thing more powerful than God's word is the tradition of man. And so we have to even be careful, and I like tradition, but we even have to be careful not to let our tradition get in the way of God. And how dare we claim that, if we, that we love God if we don't love our brother or our sister. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'll say it this way. True spirituality is defined not only by how good you are, but really it's defined by how good you are to others. In other words, how do you treat people? As someone said, the real test of your character is how you treat the people you don't have to be nice to. How do you treat the waiter or the waitress at the restaurant? How do you treat the cashier? Years ago, when Jill and I were going to Bible college in Ellendale, North Dakota, we went from Ellendale down to Cedar Falls, Iowa to see our folks. And every time we made a trip to Cedar Falls, Iowa, we'd stock up the car. We'd go to Aldi's back then, had Aldi's in the Midwest. And we'd go to Aldi's and buy all kinds of canned stuff and boxed items, whatever. And I was in line at the grocery store. And ahead of me was a gentleman. And I was in my 20s back then, so I was young, a little more bold in some areas and maybe less wise, I don't know, but uh, this gentleman in front of me was railing on the cashier, just bemeaning her, complaining about the prices, and I spoke up and I said, sir, if you don't like shopping here, don't shop here, but please don't take out your anger on this cashier, and it shut him up like that. Again, I wouldn't probably say that today, you know, I, I just, you know, but I, I said that, and Jill was with me, I don't know if she remembers or not, but, but he just shut up, and when it was my turn to check out, she started, you know, ringing up, she goes, thank you for saying something. I used to be a cashier, I mean, I, I understand what they go through. Nowadays, you have to do your own cashiering, and pretty soon, before you know it, you'll be unloading the truck for them, too, you know, come on, but uh, anyway, <laughs> just kidding. But today, here, here's the thing, the, the debate about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols is not part of our cultural conversation. But what Paul shares here, I think, could, could be relevant as ever in your life and my life, because what Paul shares here is really true spirituality. It's what true spirituality looks like. Now, according to Paul, it's not determined by whether you eat certain types of meat, you know, whatever, but really by your attitude toward other people. 
And so what I want to do this morning is for us to consider three others-oriented marks of true spirituality. In other words, if you want to be, in Paul's words, known by God, verse 3, here are three attitudes to develop. The first one is this. Number one, true spirituality is defined by love. It's defined by love. If you want to become spiritual, there are a number of things you must master in your personal life. First of all, you must be committed to the goal of spirituality. I mean, we, need, we should be able to say, you know, I am not going to let the world, I'm not going to let sin, I'm not going to let money or my enemies or my friends or family stand in my way of me becoming closer to God. I mean, we, we, we are committed to this idea of, of, of the goal of being Christ-like, you know, true spirituality. We also need discipline. We need to be disciplined. In other words, we govern ourselves and force ourselves at times to do what we necessarily don't want to do or don't like to do, but it's, it's the right thing to do. And at other times, we don't do what we want to do or, you know, vice versa. You know, and, and bottom line, it takes discipline. We, 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 if left to our own whims, we're going to destroy ourselves, you know. So it takes discipline. We also need to be consistent. In other words, making it a regular habit to attend the worship service weekly, and that's W-E-E-K-L-Y, not W-E-A-K-L-Y, <laughs> just for your spelling your information there. Because today, if a person attends once a month in America, they see themselves as ultra-committed to Christ. I was brought up, and, and this is the way I think and the way I believe and everything else today, but when the doors are open, I'll be there. Yeah, but you're the pastor. Well, no, I'll be there when I'm not the pastor. When I'm on vacation, I'm in church on Sunday. That's my practice. That's my habit. I will be somewhere in church when I'm on vacation. And it's not the church in the mountains in the forest. You know what I'm saying? All right. <laughs> My neighbor's like, well, that's my church out there. Well, no, Dennis, you need to be in, you know, anyway. Uh, we go back and forth all the time. Anyway, so uh, back to consistency. Consistency and attendance and Bible study and worship and service to God. Now, all these things can't be done in a half-hearted, what I feel like fashion. They must be done consistently. So be consistent. We also need to be teachable. We need to become students of the Word, learning what the Bible says, because how can we obey the Bible if we don't know what it says? All right? And so what does the Bible say about God, about holiness, about marriage, about child-rearing, about you know, career ambitions or whatever? We need to know the truth in order to live out the truth. We, we are teachable. And so that's also a component of all that. And, and there's also, we need to be gracious. We need to be uh, merciful and forgiving. I mean, God's been gracious to you. God's, been, God's forgiven you of more than you can imagine. And you say, well, I could never forgive so-and-so because of what they'd done to me. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, back it up a minute. God's forgiven you of this, and now you're to forgive that person of whatever, you know, you know what I'm saying? So if God's been merciful to you and me, we need to be merciful to others. If God's been gracious to us, we need to extend that grace to other people. Now, as important as all these components are and all these habits are, Paul tells us they're really not the end all to spirituality. In other words, it's not enough to accumulate knowledge or be disciplined or be consistent or committed or teachable. You know, these are all important ideas and they're all there for us. But bottom line for all of us is that 
you and I need to develop a heart of love. A love for God and a love for people. As Paul says, he says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Whoever loves God, it is known by God. Years ago, I was praying in my own personal prayer time, and I was asking God, I was praying, here's my prayer. I was saying, God, give me a greater love for the lost. And I was praying this. I was just praying, God, give me a greater love for the lost. And I really felt God speak to my heart, and God said this to me. Brian, if you'll develop a love for me, you will have a love for the lost. And so my focus kind of changed, like, God, help me to love you like you want me to love you. And, and, and with that came a greater love for lost people. You see, that's, that's the primary component uh, of the Christian life, that, that heart of love. Uh, you'll, you'll see this later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We have what was termed the love chapter. And Paul says there, If I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so what is he saying there? Once again, Christian love, love for God, love for people is the primary component of the Christian life. True spirituality. You've heard the saying, I'm sure I've used it before, and that is this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, in the same way, in a sense, can be said about God. God's primary concern for your spiritual growth, for my spiritual growth, is not how much we know. It's how much we love. Because there's coming a day when I'm going to stand before God on Judgment Day, and God's going to say, I should say God won't say, well, Brian, you know, you were really good at the Greek and the Hebrew language, and wow, you could argue the authorship of Isaiah with the best of them, or wow, you, you preached to the same church for the same people for 23 years. Those things are important to God. You care less about those things. See, God wants you and me to develop a heart full of love towards others and towards him, bottom line. Loving God and loving people. If you get nothing else out of this, loving God and loving people. Because true spirituality isn't measured by how good you are, but how good you are to others. Here's the second thing that shows us in this passage. Number two, true spirituality is evidenced by empathy. Empathy. What is empathy? According to the dictionary, it is the capacity to identify with a person or object. In other words, it's the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes, to see the world from his or her point of view. Now, in discussing the matter of, of, of eating food that has been sacrificed to idols, remember that Paul has already stated that it's not a sin to eat this meat. But then he goes on to say in verses 9 uh, through 11, So be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak, or to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Now we've all heard about trigger warnings. Sometimes they can be quite silly. For example, if you were to sit down with your family this afternoon to watch The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, wardrobe, the streaming service will warn you before the movie begins that this film contains tobacco uh, depictions. 
I've watched that show, that movie, more than once, and I've never seen tobacco depictions. All right, and so that seems to me to be a little excessive that they would put that on there. But maybe it is, in reality, a trigger for others. Now, we're, without taking it to extreme, we can make it the point to empathize with the struggles of those around us and to respond accordingly. Now, let me just back this up a little bit. If someone is trying to develop a healthier eating lifestyle, I'm not going to chomp on my potato chips in front of them or my, my Twinkie or whatever it might be. You know, sponge cake, living on sponge cake as the sun bakes. No, no okay. Um, if someone recently lost a loved one, I'm not going to make light of life's tragedies. If someone is struggling with depression, I'm not going to share with them all the news of the day because the news is pretty down and depressing. If someone still associates a certain type of music with the, first, uh, with the worst phase of their life, I'm not going to sing those songs in their presence. That's what I'm saying. See, that attitude for you and me develops some time to, to really develop in our lives. See, on one hand, we all want to be able to say, you know, I refuse to allow some other person dictate what kind of music I listen to or what kind of food I eat or what I talk about when they're around. And to a certain extent, we are justified in having that attitude or having those rights. We don't live our lives on the whim of others. For example, I'm not going to let someone else prevent me from talking about Jesus, from praying, from reading his word just because they don't like that in my life. However, this isn't about letting others make our decisions for us. It is about being sensitive to the needs of those around us. And if I can make one simple adjustment in my life that can help strengthen someone in their walk with Christ, it's an adjustment I should be willing to make. That's what I'm trying to get across. In other words, we must learn to see the world through the eyes of others, all the while keeping in mind that we don't belong here. We are just passing through. This is only temporary. So being spiritual is not just about how good you are. It's about how good you are to others. Now, this idea overlaps with a third principle of true spirituality, and that is this. Number three, true spirituality is evidenced by sacrifice. We talked about self-denial earlier by sacrifice Paul says very plainly in verse 13 therefore if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall now, now being brought up in the Midwest on a farm in the farm area I'm a meat eater all right, uh, I have a t-shirt that a former parishioner gave me. I don't wear it too often. And the, and the t-shirt says PETA, P-E-T-A, people eating tasty animals. That's what, that's what I was rate. Now, that might offend some of you because you're a vegetarian. We're going to get into that. But, I, but, but well, I'll just say it this way. Um, there's a shirt I put on on Wednesday, and Jill says, you're wearing that shirt? And the shirt says, uh, people... People don't believe I'm real and has a picture of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, but they believe, the bottom says, but they believe Biden got 81 million votes. <laughs> no one wants to engage me in conversation over that T-shirt. 
my wife doesn't like it, but I think it's hilarious, but that's my sense of humor. Anyway, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to be reading from the message paraphrase. It's a paraphrase, not a literal translation, but I like the way the message puts Romans 14. Because keeping in mind what we just read from 1 Corinthians 8, follow me along in your Bibles. Romans 14, 1 through 23. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they say, they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems they're strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Verse 2. For instance, a person who has been around for a while might be convinced that he can eat anything on the table while another with a different background might assume he should only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fail to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Man, I like that. Verse 5, or say, one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy and another thinks that each day is pretty much like the other. So there are good reasons either way. So each person is free to follow the convictions of their conscience. Look at verse 6. What's important in all this is that you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. Then he says this, if you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. I like that. That's why I'm reading the message paraphrase. And thank God for prime rib. I would add brisket in there. <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. There are a few cucumbers left back there. Please take them on your way out. If you got one, you can take two. Just do not throw the fresh produce at the preacher. Anyway, so thank God for broccoli. I like prime rib. I like broccoli. I love fruits and vegetables. And I won't go, I could go on a rabbit trail, but I won't right now. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. I like that. In other words, you lay aside your rights. It's God we are answerable to, all the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. Uh, that's why Jesus lived and died and then lived again so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. Isn't that good? Verse, 12, verse 10. So where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? And where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly or worse eventually we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. Read it for yourself in Scripture. As I live and breathe, God says, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will tell the honest truth that I and only I am God. So tend to your knitting. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. In other words, Learn to mind your own business. Tend to your knitting. Verse 13, forget about deciding what's right for each other. 
Here's what you need to be concerned about. That you don't get in the way of someone else making life more difficult than it already is. I'm, I'm convinced, Jesus convinced me that everything as it is, is itself is holy. In itself is holy. We, of course, by the way we treat it or talk about it, can contaminate it. In other words, we can mess things up pretty fast, can't we? Verse 15, if you confuse others by making a big issue over what they eat or don't eat, you are no longer a companion with them in love. In love, are you? These, remember, are persons for whom Christ died. Would you risk sending them to hell over an item in their diet? Do you dare that a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning? God's kingdom isn't a matter of what you put in your stomach, for goodness sake. It's what God does with your life as he sets it right, puts it together, and completes it with joy. Your task, your task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Do that and you'll kill two birds with one stone, pleasing the God above you and proving your word to the people around you. Verse 19, so let's agree to use all our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. You're certainly not going to permit an argument over what is served or not served at supper to wreck God's work among you, are you? I said it before and I'll say it again. All food is good, but it can turn bad if you use it badly. If you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling. When you sit down to a meal, and this is good advice right here. When you sit down to a meal, he says, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Christ. That's good. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. So be sensitive and courteous to, to, uh, to the others who are eating. Don't say or eat, don't eat or say or do things that might interfere with the free exchange, here it is, of love. Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't impose it on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you're acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinions on others, other days just trying to please them, then you know that you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. Man, there's a lot of information in chapter 14. And the thought continues in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, that I'm not reading this morning. Read it on your own. But here's the bottom line principle that Paul's trying to get his readers to understand and, and for really for us to understand today. When someone else's spiritual health is at stake, you must be willing to sacrifice your freedom for their benefit. Now, in the culture in which Paul lived, eating food sacrificed to idols was an issue. In our culture, it's not. It's not an issue. There are, however, other freedoms that we should approach with caution in order not to cause any of our weaker brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble. Now, you may be convinced that certain things are okay and do not conflict with the Christian life. In fact, there are a number of things that we make issues out of that the Bible never mentions at all. Now, you might be absolutely right when you insist that you are free to do them, 
That's between you and God. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point is that true spirituality is evidenced by a willingness to sacrifice so-called freedoms for the sake of a fellow Christian, a weaker Christian. Now, on the flip side of that coin, if you take a great deal of pride in all the things you don't do, don't make the mistake of thinking your austerity makes you spiritual. For example, if you don't smoke, drink, dance, go to movies, watch TV, listen to secular music, wear facial hair or, or makeup, that doesn't mean you're spiritual because true spirituality isn't about surface level behavior. It's more than just how good you are, it's how good you are to others. Therefore, if anything you do causes someone to stumble in the faith, it's best not to do it at least before them or when they're around. It's best to sacrifice a so-called freedom for their spiritual good. Now you may say, well, Pastor Brian, does that mean that if anyone disapproves of what I do, I can't do it no matter how insignificant it is to me? Does that mean I let others control my life? I mean, what if someone tells me that when I play golf, it causes them to stumble? Am I supposed to give up golf? Or what if they say they think it's wrong for me to consume caffeine in my cup of coffee? I would say, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm just kidding you. <clears throat> but there are, there are religious people today that think coffee isn't good. The stimulant in coffee, the caffeine, isn't good for you. Therefore, you shouldn't drink coffee or a Coca-Cola or whatever. Am I supposed to give up coffee? Uh, there's, there's, let me make this distinction. Paul is talking about sacrificing for a weaker, a weaker fellow Christian. If anything causes a weaker, younger, spiritually immature believer to question the validity of his or her faith, as in eating meat sacrificed to idols had done in his day, we should be willing to lay that aside in order to prevent someone from stumbling. However, there are some people who will disapprove of something you do, something you say, and, and whatever, and, and, and it doesn't cause them to question the validity of their faith, but it does cause them to question the validity of your faith. And so they want to judge you because you eat pork or drink coffee or play golf. These people are busybodies, and you have to ignore them. All right. Now, you would think a sermon on true spirituality would include things like, well, how's your prayer life, and are you fasting, and uh, are you worshiping, are you evangelizing, you know, are you involved in a Bible study, whatever. Uh, now, these are all good, and they are absolutely uh, and, and undeniably essential to living the, uh, the Christian life. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the Bible says, well, if you're nice to people, then you're in heaven. You know, it's, you're, you're in, it's, you're a shoe. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. It's much deeper than that. We all know that in living the Christian life that we all want to become, hopefully, the goal is, is Christ-likeness. You know, Romans 8, 29. We want to strive to become holy and, and more like Christ. However, being like Jesus involves much more than praying and reading your Bible and turning off your TV. Being like Christ involves you and I allowing ourselves to get into God's presence. And in God's presence, God's life is imparted to us. And we long for more of that, and we long to please him, and we long to bring as many people with us 
to heaven. You know, we, 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 we want to do what we can because me being close to God hopefully shows up in my relationships and how I treat people and how you treat people as well. And so always remember, if you want to be more like Jesus Christ, remember it's not merely a question of how good you are, but how good you are to others. How do you treat people? How do you treat people you don't have to be nice to? Amen? Let's all stand to our feet. We'll close in prayer. I trust you got something out of this. We'll continue on in chapter 9, Lord willing, next week as Paul talks about his rights as an apostle. And when it comes down to it, you know something? When we become a follower of Christ, we lay down our freedoms, our liberties, our rights at the foot of the cross. And we want to make sure that, that God is at the helm of our life saying, I'm directing you, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you here. How many would say this morning, you know, Pastor, heard your message, easier said than done, because some people are hard to love. <laughs> but, but God helped me by giving me a love for you that will be evidenced, and then that will be evidenced in my love for others. Let's make that our prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking to us through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would, that we would practice love among ourselves, among weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we would learn to lay aside our rights for their spiritual well-being. And Father, help us, even though today we don't struggle with meat being offered to idols and, and partaking of that, but there's other areas that we struggle with. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be victorious in these areas, but to live a life that is pleasing and, and honoring and glorifying to Jesus Christ. God, help us to be transformed to his image day in and day out. And Lord, even as I prayed many years ago, God, give, give me a love for you that will result in a love for people, a love for the lost, a love for the found, a love for people in general. Because God, you still love this world. You still love people. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning, if you're not where you need to be at in a relationship with God, or maybe, maybe you've never made a, a public confession of your faith in Christ, well, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to get right with God. And, and the only sin that God can't and won't forgive is a sin you don't repent of. But if you have known sin in your life and, and God's speaking to your heart today about repenting of that, about just becoming clean before him, about experiencing his forgiveness, I'm going to ask you where you're standing right now or sitting, sitting down. I'm just going to say, you know, raise your hand and say, Pastor Brian, include me today because I need Christ in my life. I need forgiveness in my life. I want to make sure that be, by the time I walk out of those doors that my heart is right with God. See, I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't give you opportunity to respond to the message, to respond to God working in your life. Just holding steady for a moment. I don't know everybody in here, but I want to give you opportunity to respond to God's love for you, God's grace, God's forgiveness in, for your life. Just holding steady for a moment. Father, now that you take this word and apply it to our lives so we wouldn't just be hearers but doers of your word, putting these things into practice of being those that will love people by loving you first, 
by empathizing with others and seeing things not just from my point of view all the time, but from their point of view. But also, God, just to be willing to sacrifice and to lay down my rights for the, for the sake of the spiritual well-being of others. And Lord, help us to, to live these things out as we, as we go about our duties this, this coming week, as we go to school, as we go to work, in our neighborhoods, at the store, in the restaurant, Father God. Help us to be a blessing to people because you have so blessed us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you his peace. Have a blessed week in the Lord. Altars are open. If you want prayer for anything, I'll be hanging around the altars to pray with you, pray for you. Other than that, uh, God bless you all. Next week, like I said, Lord willing, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, Paul's rights of an, as an apostle. We'll be covering that. God bless you all.